Okay, Jesse, last week's Happy Land case was so devastating. What you got for me this week? Y'all are in for a truly gory, super grisly Valentine's Day treat. Because today we are covering Catherine Knight, the world's craziest ex-girlfriend and cannibal killer. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about love gone fatally wrong with sometimes devastating consequences. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five star rating on your podcast app and help new people discover the show. And if you leave us a review and send us a little DM, we will send you some stickers. Yay, stickers. Okay. So, Andy, remember last week at the end of the episode when I was waxing poetic about how we were going to have a really fun turn-of-the-century crime? Yeah. Well, I lied. I, <laughs> I thought I wasn't sure about Catherine Knight being and like being sure a crazy century. ex-girlfriend being very vintage. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the pregnancy brain is real strong with me right now. Um, at this recording, we're, you know, not as far away, but when this airs, Andy and I will be just about both 37 weeks. Andy will definitely be 37 weeks and I will be just about 37 weeks. But right now I am still deep in the third trimester and it is really kicking my butt. Um, So I was actually writing the turn of the century one and I was like so excited about it because I was like in the middle of it. So that's actually next week. So we have something to look forward to. Jesse, it's so hard for you because you're like writing, telling, and have on cue different stories. Whereas for me, I'm just editing as I go. Like You are really in the moment, Andy. Yeah, you yeah. are like in the moment. You're in the story. I am right now researching two different stories for the future, writing one, and I'm about to tell you this one. So yeah. I'm like living in four different crime stories right now. <laughs> A lot. It's- it's crazy. Um, but yeah, so I didn't even get to sell you guys on Catherine Knight, which I mean, I'm sure so many of you, the majority of you crime lovers out there are going to know what this case is because it is so truly insane. And I am I was like psyched as hell to find out that Andy hasn't actually heard the story yet. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, Andy, are you in for a gross surprise today? Ugh, so I, mean, the- I like just watched the most gruesome movie last night, Possessor, and so I feel like it's just going to be a gruesome 24 hours for me. You are having a very gory, very horror-y 24 hours apparently. I think it's the I think it's the last one for the year, I think. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to try to like take it back a notch. Um Nathaniel <laughs> turned about green when I was like trying to reiterate the script to him today. Oh my god. Uh so with that being said, guys, uh trigger warning on this one for sure. Earlier in the story, there's going to be some childhood sexual abuse and there's going to be a lot of gratuitous violence and violence against animals, sorry to say. Um 
Yep. Sorry, Andy. But that being said, I know that you guys are all twisted true crime junkies, so you can handle this shit. So let's jump in. On a misty March 1st, 2000 morning in Aberdeen, Australia, people were concerned about John Price. The amiable single father had finally kicked his violent girlfriend to the curb, filing a restraining order only the day before. Catherine Knight, John's on-and-off-again girlfriend, was practically a villainous folk legend around Aberdeen. Born to a violent clan, standing six feet tall, skilled (laughs) with knives. Oh yeah, she is a tall drink of water. With a criminal record and history of psychiatric hospitalizations. Make no mistake, Catherine Knight was a dangerous woman. But according to John and the gossip around the Aberdeen pubs, also quite the wildcat in the sack. Oh, God. Is it worth it, though? I don't think so. (laughs) I definitely don't think so after researching this case. Oh, God. Despite that silver lining, John had finally stepped off the roller coaster that was life with Catherine after she had stabbed him near fatally. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's, that'll make like, me say goodbye. Did she like have a knife collection? Like, oh, she's like a knife. Yes. Okay. Yeah, she's a knifeist. Is that what they're, what a knife enthusiast is called, Andy? A knifeist? <laughs> knifeophile? <laughs> yes, she's certainly a knifeophile. <laughs> the previous day, as the wound bled through his shirt, he told concerned coworkers that he ended it for good. But as he left that evening, he told his friends, if I don't show up for work tomorrow, it'll be because she killed me. (laughs) And he was not being dramatic, unfortunately. John called, what'd you say? Is this like over like a pint of beer and like some sweet chili chips? (laughs) Or is this like- You know what? This is really good because Andy lived in Australia for like half a year before, right? Yep. Yes, so you can give us the Australian perspective as this is our first Australian case and I have never been. Also, I am not even attempting an Australian accent, so y'all's ears are spared. (laughs) I think it would have been fun, but it is something that I feel like you need to be there to absorb it. Exactly. You need to live through that. And I have not. So it would be like some really bad crocodile Dundee like ad living. (laughs) That's not a knife. This is a knife. Yes. Andy, you have to do the voices this time. I should have sent you the script. (laughs) Yeah. So a lot of the socialization obviously takes place in bars for the story and pubs. John called Pricey by his friends, went home that night and drowned his sorrows with his neighbors, spilling the whole saga to the group who were entirely too familiar with Catherine's reputation and madness. When Pricey didn't show up for work the next morning, a coworker was immediately dispatched to check on him and was met in the drive by a concerned neighbor who noticed John's car was still parked in front of the house. The two men were horrified to find smeared, bloody handprints on the front door. Yikes. The pattern appeared consistent with someone who was covered with blood attempting to escape and being dragged back into the house. The coworker wasted no time in calling the police, and the police, also being aware of Catherine's history of violence, quickly swarmed the scene. 
what the police found inside the house was worse than a scene from a horror movie. Every step inside the home revealed more gore, more cruelty, and a stunning tableau of psychopathy, derangement, and even cannibalism. The men investigating the scene were small-town cops unaccustomed to the level of unmitigated evil found at the crime scene. Most left the forest soon afterwards. Some even committed suicide. And even the hardiest of them were forever changed. Those few resilient men suddenly developing an aversion to meat that lasted for years. Welcome to the case that will affirm Andy's veganism and maybe put you two off of stakes for a little while. (laughs) The terrifying true story of the world's craziest ex-girlfriend, Aussie cannibal killer, Catherine Knight. What a title. Uh Uh-huh. I'm thinking of naming this one, I love you so much I could eat you. (laughs) I love you so much I ate you. I ate you. Yeah. Oh, God. I love you. I ate you. I love you. I ate you. That's a great one. Maybe we'll go with that. Um, Yeah, guys, I I really hope, you know, if this is your first episode with us, this is a little more gruesome than we're usually used to. And as a result, Andy and I might respond to the horror with some humor because that is our coping mechanism. So I don't want you to think, yes, that we're making light of this terrible situation. And I I really hope you listen to other episodes and understand the amount of respect we have for victims. But there, I mean, this is such a bananas case that it kind of like, we need some emotional outlet to even talk about these atrocities, you know? I also like as a person when I am uncomfortable or feel bad or embarrassed, I laugh the yes. whole time. like I like yeah. I feel bad because someone will like trip and I'll laugh and I'll I'll be asking if they're okay while I'm laughing but I'm also like embarrassed and like scared yeah completely I do 100% the same thing and I'm sure that you know a lot of our listeners do so hopefully guys you will understand and if this is your first episode wow did you pick a crazy one to start on and welcome I, I feel like sometimes that's the best thing to do like if you really want to get down and dirty like it's like when you go to a Thai restaurant you have to order the pad Thai to tell if they're like a good Thai restaurant Absolutely. you know it's like yeah. And a lot of, I think when I listen to true crime podcasts, a lot of times I start with a case that I kind of know to just to see how they, they cover know, it. do with it, mm-hmm. how they cover it. And this is a case that's very popular. So it's entirely possible we have some new people here. So thanks for listening. Uh, in 1955, Catherine and her twin sister, Joy, were born in Moree in New South Wales, Australia to scandalous parents, Barbara and Ken Knight who had met while Barbara was married to high school sweetheart Jack Ruffin. The mother of four was instantly attracted to the tall, well-built man's man who worked at the slaughterhouse with her husband. Over several boozy pub outings, Barbara and Ken had flirted egregiously in front of the other slaughterhouse workers and their wives, her husband too drunk to notice. Eventually, the affair turned sexual, and where Jack and Barbara's sex life had grown tedious, even chore-like, and then dwindled to non-existent, the passion that Ken had could not be contained. Often, Barbara and Ken would have sex several times, like even up to 10 over the course of one sordid sneak-away. How long would a sneak-away be? 
don't know, like a few hours. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. How old were they? Uh, I mean, they were still really young. I mean, this okay. is back in the day where you started having kids like in your late teens, you know? Okay. Yeah. Eventually, Jack began to suspect Barbara of infidelity and his fears were confirmed when Barbara came home with a faint bruise on her thigh in the shape of a handprint. Yikes. <laughs> that's a little, that's a tell, that's a hard to explain one there. <laughs> Unfortunately, at this point, Jack beat Barbara bloody and kicked her into the street, uh, um, making sure. Yeah, making sure to let their four sons, the neighbors, and really all of Aberdeen know that Barbara was an adulteress and, his words, whore. With nowhere to go, Barbara went to her lover's tiny apartment and moved in the very day she was evicted from her family home. So I do want to point out that Aberdeen is like north and inland of Newcastle. Aberdeen is even like further out and inland from from there. So it's like, it has to be the most small town vibe. Yes. It also, like through my reading, they described it as extremely rural and extremely conservative. Yeah. And this is back in the early 50s, which was obviously a much more conservative era. So we are talking real rural, real conservative, real small town. Obviously, they became social pariahs for this behavior. So Jack wasted no time in shipping the two youngest boys to Sydney to live with his sister, and he instructed the oldest two to spit at their mother in the street when they saw her. Jesus Christ. Uh Uh-huh. That is some misogynistic shit as well as, like, the one thing you don't want to do in a divorce is draw your kids into it. But here we go. The new couple had nothing left tying them to Aberdeen, where they had become pariahs, like I said. So they moved to Maury, where Jack had secured a position in a local slaughterhouse, and Barbara secured a divorce from her vengeful ex-husband. Good. Yep. Barbara and Ken had a wedding shortly thereafter, sparsely attended mostly by his family, who were local to Maury, and one special guest in Barbara's belly. Barbara was pregnant. <laughs> with Ken? <laughs> yes. Okay. With Ken, who was... I mean, they were really playing the odds there, given how much they were having sex. Seriously. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Barbara had two boys in quick succession, bringing her kid total to a whopping six sons. Six boys? Jesus. Six boys, because she had four with her ex and two with Ken. And she began to feel like maybe she had jumped out of the frying pan and into the fire. Life in Marie was isolating. Ken was a drunk who demanded sex up to 10 times a day. And when he didn't get it, he would either he would either beat her into compliance or rape her occasionally in front of the children. Okay, that's beyond fucked. Yeah, this love story just took a turn. It's not a good story. As the two little boys grew, they inherited their father's aggression and violence, taking swings at each other and their long-suffering mother. Barbara was depressed when she found out she was expecting again, especially because she was told it was twins. (laughs) Yeah, so she's like, shit. And I think after having six sons, you kind of have given up hope that you can have girls. So she thought it was just going to be more boys to degrade and hit her. So you can imagine her delight when she gave birth to two perfect redheaded baby girls. 
So she thought like these kids will be different. These girls will be like my friends. They're going to be on my side. If only she could have known that Catherine would grow up to be the most dangerous one of them all. Catherine grew up as rough and tumble as her older brothers, defiant and spirited, attributes that could not be beat out of her despite her father's efforts. She grew up much, much too fast, a witness to her mother's physical and sexual abuse and her father and brother's punching bag. Barbara was a depressed woman who lacked friends and boundaries, so Catherine quickly became her confidant. Like when she was as early as just like 10 years old, maybe even younger, Barbara would share like sexually explicit stories and sordid family secrets, as well as complain bitterly about men and the things they did to you and how her life had turned out. Like Jesus, way too much to put on a little girl or any little kid, obviously, you know? In 1959, when Catherine was only four, Jack Ruffin died and Barbara's two older teenage sons were sent to live with the Knight family. The boys had been taught to refer to their mother as, you know, some really nasty slurs. And then they watched their stepfather treat Barbara basically like an abusive, abused sex doll. Yeah. To please him at his beck and call. So clearly those examples of how men treated women had shaped these two little boys into monsters. Yeah. Between the ages of four and 14, Catherine was the target, a gradually worsening series of sexual assaults in her own home by her own brothers. What about the other sister as well? Um, I'm not sure. I'm sure that Joy got it as well because she was also in the house. But for some reason, Catherine was especially a target. At least it seemed like in my reading that was the case. Okay. Um, also, I forgot to give you guys my source material, and it is a little Valentine's Day present to myself, because today <laughs> we are re- reading Man Eater by Ryan Green, oh, my God, you love boy. Him. I love him. I love him. I love him. Have you found um, him on the gram? No, I haven't. I should probably look him up. Love Murder should follow Ryan Green for sure. Um, yeah, he's a UK based author, actually. Um, but this is probably our last Ryan Green, at least for a little while, because the rest of his uh, books are about like, actual serial killers. And obviously, like love murders about people who kill people that they love and not strangers for the most part. So yeah, this is probably our last Ryan Green for a while, guys. And I just wanted to give myself that gift this Valentine's Day. So yeah. Basically, this is how Ryan Green described the abuse that Catherine went through. As they grew old enough, the younger duo also started to join in with their new brother's favorite hobby. Before she had even reached her teenage years, all four boys were using her for their sexual pleasure. If it hadn't been for her mother's example, Catherine would have been mystified by the strange actions of the boys but Barbara was always more than happy to regale her girls with tales of her sexual exploitation, giving them all the explicit details of the disgusting things that men would want them to do. Catherine finally had the courage to ask, what do you say if you don't want to do those things? Her mother gave her the worst advice she would ever receive in her life. Just let them do what they want with you. It's easier that way. Wow. 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 This is, you know, Andy and I are pregnant. This is what not to do in parenting. 
You'll need a parenting book to teach you that. (laughs) Yeah, what not to do. The only bright spot in Catherine's life was time spent with her uncle, Oscar. Oscar owned a horse farm where he raised and rescued former champions and other abandoned or abused horses. Oscar showed her patience, empathy, and gave her an outlet for healing. Sadly, Oscar was deeply depressed himself, and in 1969, when Catherine was only 14 years old, he committed suicide by shooting himself. Oh, God. So this was like the last port in the storm for Catherine. And it ended up being a huge turning point in her life. Finally, all of the rage, pain, and anger that she'd been holding back came flooding to the surface. The next time one of her brothers tried to molest her, she punched him so hard she broke his jaw. She also swore that if he ever tried to touch her again, she'd castrate him. Over the course of the next two months, both older boys would suffer minor stab wounds that they blamed on kitchen accidents. And for good measure, Catherine gave her remaining brother a black eye, a visual reminder to all four of her tormentors to back the F off. Good for her. Yeah. But yeah, it doesn't take a psychiatrist to note why she became violent later in life. It was her only survival mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. The poor thing. I was like talking about this with Nathaniel and he's like, just once I'd like one of these serial killer stories to be like, he had a wonderful life with parents who loved and supported them. (laughs) I don't because I feel like then it's like, what the fuck went wrong? Yeah, well, that's why it would be even scarier. Yeah, it's, that's like too bewildering for me. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, like looking at your baby with a side eye. <laughs> You're like, uh-oh. <laughs> After a decade in Maury and the loss of Oscar, there wasn't much keeping the nights there any longer. A long enough time had passed where the scarlet letter had faded from Barbara's chest in Aberdeen's collective memory And Barbara yearned to get back to her family and the place she always had considered home. By the time Catherine was 15, they were settled back in Aberdeen, where she would spend most of her adult life. Catherine was a fairly good student, but displayed shockingly aggressive behavior, exploding at the slightest insult and retaliating in violent ways, even stabbing a schoolmate who talked back to her. After not even a year in her new school, she attacked a teacher with a knife after she was given a poor grade, and the man punched her in self-defense. So she literally is Crocodile Dundee. She is, and this is a reminder that teachers are underpaid. (laughs) She's Louisey. Both teacher and student were suspended after a hearing where many, many people came forward with Catherine's violent behavior. The teacher was reinstated and eventually Catherine was allowed back, but on probation. Can you imagine being this teacher though? And you have like stabby long stockings up in your classroom over here. Crocodile dundress. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. I'd be like, can we not have? Can we not do this? She tried to kill me. Like, why are you putting me back in a classroom with her? Australia's raw. You know, it's outback. It's so raw. If the spiders don't kill you, your students will. Oh, God. She eventually said, screw this and quit school altogether at the age of 15. She attempted to get her, quote, dream job at the slaughterhouse to follow in her father's footsteps. But... (laughs) Dream job. 
I think we can all say working in a slaughterhouse is our dream job. But as she had not yet grown into what would become a six-foot brawny frame, the manager didn't think the slaughterhouse would be the right place for a teenage girl. Shocking. I know. (laughs) Catherine bided her time working as a cutter in a clothing factory. She made enough to move into a small apartment across town and enjoyed joining the slaughterhouse men at a pub after her shift. When she turned 16, Catherine went back to the slaughterhouse with a year of working a factory job and independent living under her belt and scored a position cutting up offal for dog food. What's that? Do you know what offal is? No. I, I figured you didn't. It's like the entrails, like guts and intestines that they don't use for other things. Yeah. It's like what they put in hot dogs, supposedly. Uh-huh. Like yeah. the, the messy extras. You know? Yeah. It's so gross. So gross. Well, Catherine excelled at her job and she rose up the ranks at the abattoir, which is the Australian word for slaughterhouse, which makes a slaughterhouse sound really nice, actually. Abattoir? abattoir. Yep. It sounds français. It does. It sounds like like weirdly sexy. I feel like Americans abattoir. give it. Yes, abattoir. <laughs> um, where Americans are like slaughterhouse, you know? <laughs> Which is like what it is. And I think the Brits call it a charnel house. I don't know. I don't know. But abattoir sounds really nice. Um, so anyway, she rose rose up the ranks at the abattoir <laughs> until she arrived at a position that was widely considered to be the most complex and demanding task on the line, deboning. Along with the promotion, Catherine was rewarded with her very own set of personalized knives and a leather bag to carry them around in. They became her prized possession. She carried them with her wherever she went, honed them to razor sharpness, and hung them on a hook above her bed while she slept. Yeah, probably not a good idea to give the girl who's stabbing her teacher a fucking, (laughs) like, satchel of knives. Stabby long stockings. She's a redhead. I feel like you didn't laugh long enough for stabby long stockings. Throw me a bone here. I really thought about that one. <laughs> I thought you just I thought it just flew off the I was trying to make it sound casual, but I yeah. totally thought about it. <laughs> all right, all right, all right, I'll write it down. Well, there's gonna be no more laughing, Andy, because I'm about to make you feel real gross. Okay. Catherine fit right in with the men at the abattoir. Her absolute favorite place in the entire production line was the pig room. So this is according to Ryan Green and Maneater. She would spend every lunch hour lingering there and chatting away with the old man who had the unenviable duty of killing the pigs in full view of the others in the pen. While the cattle were typically slaughtered with a stunning blow to the head before the knife work began, the smaller creatures were not afforded the same kindness. Their wailing squeals could be heard throughout the entire building over the course of the day. High-pitched, shrill, and almost human-sounding screams. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand why people want to eat this. Mm. Yeah, it's not going to get much better, so hang on. Catherine, you know, I'm ready to watch all of the blood drain out of my face. Yeah, I was like, this part is going to be real bad for Andy. And I was like half excited, but half sad to do this to my best friend. <laughs> um, this is like, this is our Upton Sinclair, the jungle moment. 
like the the yellow journalism moment that makes you go off meat. Catherine was absolutely fascinated. There were a lot of foul rumors circulating the old man who slaughtered the pigs, mainly revolving around the fact that he enjoyed his work more than was appropriate. And because of this, he lived a fairly lonely life, with the exception of his new best friend, Catherine, in whom he found something of a kindred spirit. In his desperation to keep her engaged, it wasn't long before he began breaking the rules killing the pigs in front of her in increasingly cruel and elaborate ways. Once even skinning a whole pig in front of her while it was still alive. Even that wasn't enough for Catherine. She didn't just want to watch. She wanted to participate. At first, he would let her step in and deliver the lethal killing cut to the throat, spraying arterial blood all over her waterproofed apron as she cackled with glee. But soon, even that wasn't sufficient to keep her entertained. She would chase a pig around the enclosure, seeing how many cuts she could inflict before it fell down, snipping a ligament here or a muscle there to see how far she could twist the pig's movements while still keeping it fleeing from her in terror. Oh, this is just torture. Yeah, I mean, these people are sick fox. Sick as hell. Yeah. She had transformed from a little girl who tried to save roadkill and nurse it back to health into a gleeful torturer of animals. Having landed her dream job and gained her freedom, Catherine next wanted to bag a man. Almost terrifyingly sexually aggressive for a teenage girl, Catherine turned the local pub into a hunting ground for her conquest. Some co-workers, like John Chillingworth, were wise to steer clear of the passionate youth. But others, like future husband David Kellett, were drawn in by her dirty sense of humor and general lawlessness. Catherine sealed the deal with David one night when the 22-year-old accidentally picked a fight with a miner at their local bar. And when I say that, I mean a miner who works in the mines, not like a miner who's underage. I'm glad that you clarified that. Yes. Um, this town, it seems like Aberdeen is like all either slaughterhouse workers or miners because there's a mine in town. So those are the two major employers. And those are like literally all she dates usually. Though David was attempting to de-escalate the confrontation because he was not a huge guy. And a lot of the guys who worked in the mines were especially like big and rough. Yeah. Um, He was like, I think he was like something like 5'10", which is like he ends up getting married to Catherine, who's over six feet. Yeah. Um. So he's like trying to like chill the whole situation out. He doesn't want to actually fight this guy. Catherine jumped right in to defend her man's honor. And she knocked the miner's teeth out in the process. <laughs> David and their coworkers held Catherine back before she could rip the man apart with her bare hands. And subsequently, the couple was banned from the bar. The two decamped to a hotel bar up the street, and David was totally taken by Catherine's protectiveness of him. In all his life, he had never felt so wanted, he said. Oh, this is, I mean, I feel the same way when women are into guys who like fight. I'm like, that's not love if he wants to kick guys' ass for you, honey. No. No. Or she, in this case. Yeah, exactly. If she wants to kick ass for you, get yourself somebody who has like the common sense to de-escalate fights on their and, own, on their own, and, and verbally, hopefully, and verbally, and can rationally work through problems and calmly. Yikes! I think there's a little bit of intelligence lacking in this. 
Yeah. Situation. So the two began dating, and Catherine proved to be a nearly perfect girlfriend. She could cook, mend clothes, and sew. She was almost overwhelmingly affectionate, and she loved nothing more than to participate in backbreaking marathon lovemaking sessions. David Kellett thought he had hit the jackpot with the fiery teen. Catherine was happy to act like the perfect wife because that was the role she wanted to play in his life. A few months into dating, the two moved in together, and Catherine made it clear that an imminent marriage was not a request, but a demand. David was happy to comply, and Catherine finally introduced him to her parents so he could state his intentions for their daughter. Ken, who was now partly retired at the abattoir, vaguely knew David from work because David drove a delivery truck for the slaughterhouse, and the two men got along pretty well. However, his first meeting and conversation with Barbara presented David with quite the shock. Here's how it went down, according to Maneater. So eventually, Barbara cornered David in the kitchen where he ducked in to fetch Ken and himself another can of beer. You want to marry her, do you? He nodded, all the nervousness he'd carried into the house coming back to him in a rush now that it was being spoken about so bluntly. You sure about that? You know she's got a screw loose. (laughs) David let out a laugh. He couldn't believe that Catherine's own mother was talking about her like that. I know she's got a little temper, yeah. Barbara tutted. Nah, you don't. Don't understand at all, do ya? He shrugged and started backing away towards the kitchen door. Barbara was flushed, a few beers in herself and getting twitchy. You better watch that one or she'll fucking kill you. Stir her up the wrong way or do the wrong thing and you're fucked. Don't you ever think of playing up on her. She'll fucking kill you. Playing up in this context means cheating on her. Yeah. David chuckled. He'd been expecting this sort of warning from Ken, the old treat my girl right threats that most fathers inflicted, but he'd never expected his future mother-in-law to be warning him about bad behavior this way. He smiled at Barbara. Don't you worry. I'll treat her well. I'm not worried. The woman was aged before her time, wrinkled and exhausted already. She stared out the window and added, ain't me she'll kill if it goes tits up. Oh, no. Whoa. Oh, that's some bogan shit right there. (laughs) Ah, yes, that's the perfect word. I was trying to think of what the Australian word was. Bogan. That is some bogan shit. Yeah. So unfortunately, David did not heed his mother-in-law's prophetic words, and David and Catherine were married a few days after her 18th birthday. The ceremony was a quick and cheap affair as the couple had saved their budget to throw a raucous party at a local bar for the reception, which is totally my type of wedding. (laughs) Have a big party, guys. Both David and Catherine indulged in the drink that night, but David especially knocked back quite a few. After they returned home to officially consummate the marriage, the two had sex three times in quick succession. David spent from a long day of the wedding and booze and what he felt was a pretty good performance, despite the whiskey, fell fast asleep. Catherine became enraged that he had passed out on her when she was just getting going and began to push and hit him to get him awake. She started slapping him and when he only moaned but didn't wake up, she got on top of him and began to strangle him. He finally came to shocked to find himself covered with slap marks and scratches and that his teenage wife was choking him to death. Hell yeah, she was. 
Yeah, when he asked her what the hell was wrong with her, she angrily told him that her father had, quote, fucked her mother five times on their wedding night. And if he was any sort of man and he loved her at all, he'd wake up and fuck her at least two more times. Oh, whoa. My God. Dude, most people don't even do it because they're so drunk. Oh, my God. I know. It doesn't (laughs) matter. If you get one in, you're doing great. You're above average. You get it in once. (laughs) (laughs) You you can aim to get it in. Jeez Louise. Man, um, David, exhausted, drunk, and horrified at the details of his in-law's sex life, told Catherine he'd be right back. He's like, sure, babe. Yeah, just got to run to the loo. And he went into the bathroom where he locked the door behind him and fell asleep in the bathtub. Like, not a great sign if you have to hide in the bathroom from your new bride. I mean, I would. Yes. Catherine spent the next 10 minutes knocking angrily at the door, but eventually returned to her marital bed alone and passed out. Not exactly an auspicious start. My God. Wildcat. The young couple was happy for the first few months of their marriage. After a while, though, Catherine felt like they were lacking the raw animal passion that had been exhibited in her own parents' marriage. You know, the one that caused her dad to rape her mother repeatedly. And began to suspect David of infidelity. In her opinion, if he wasn't, like, dying to rip her clothes off all the time, then he had to be getting it somewhere else. Yep. Her paranoia led David to trade in his job as a truck driver for a less well-paying position working on the line in the slaughterhouse so that Catherine could keep an eye on him as she worked. Oh, my God. That's crazy. Frustrated by the constant fights and accusations, David began to spend more time at the pub than at home, which, of course, only heightened Catherine's anger and suspicion. One night when he stopped home after work to change into a fresh shirt before heading to the bar, she seethed. Who was he sneaking off to meet in his fancy new shirt? I mean, he works at a slaughterhouse, babe. Like, let him change his shirt. Yikes. <laughs> He's not exactly day trading over here, you know? Enraged. Going out for martinis after a long day. Broke out. He's not strolling down Wall Street. Like, let him change his goddamn shirt. It's probably covered with guts. <laughs> Enraged, she gathered his wardrobe in the bathtub, doused it the entire thing with lighter fluid, and set it on fire. So all of his clothes. The blaze brought the Aberdeen Fire Department, and since many of the men were volunteers because it's a small town and they had been drinking with David, he learned very quickly that his house was on fire. When the firefighters put out the flames and cleared the smoke, it was very obvious what had started the fire. The clothes melted and adhered to the tub, and the entire bathroom was black with soot and smoke damage. Oh, my God. David and Catherine's messy marriage was on display for the entire town, and the damage so extensive that the couple was forced to move, this time to a small house located near the abattoir. Around this time, Catherine also discovered... She's pregnant. Great, great, great. Every every marriage that's going this way deserves that. Oh, boy. So the hormones and anxiety over having a baby only resulted in more extreme behavior and paranoia. David continued to escape to the bar to get away from Catherine's mood swings. And one night when he staggered home drunk yet again, 
Catherine decided that burning his clothes hadn't been enough to teach her dirty dog husband a lesson. This time, she took a scalding hot clothes iron to his face. Uh Uh-huh. It burned a thick gash across his cheek, searing through almost to the bone. If David hadn't flinched away at exactly the right moment, he certainly would have lost an eye. He managed to get away to the bathroom where he could lock the door. I mean, goddamn, this guy's got one room in the house that's like his safe room. The bathroom. (laughs) Ugh, it's insane. Catherine immediately begged his forgiveness, and for some God knows what reason, he complied, letting Catherine administer first aid to his wound and even having sex with her after this, that same night. Yeah, if he doesn't, she's going to kill him. Oh, my God. You know? Poor guy. He needs to run. Somebody save David. The next day at work, his supervisor insisted he head to the hospital where the nasty wound was finally properly tended to, but David's face would be permanently marred by the grisly burn scar that became his most prominent feature. Oh, no. Oh, no. It was bad. Catherine behaved like a classic abuser during this time. She would beg for forgiveness. She would become the perfect partner and wife. She would shower David with sex and affection and make sure he had all of his favorite dinners like on the table when he came home. That was until the next time something set her off and she would inflict terrible physical pain on David and then set the whole cycle back in motion. I mean, this is classic abuse cycle. Ugh. I mean, she's a monster. Yeah. The next occasion for her cruelty and violence occurred when David was a mere four minutes late from coming home. Basically, she said, if you don't want me to act crazy, you just have to be home by a certain period of time and I'll like never bother you. Like, I'm not going to call the bar. I'm not going to ask what you're doing, but you have to be home by X amount of time. And he came home exactly four minutes late one day. As he entered the house, an enraged Catherine, who was lying in wait, let him pass through the door and then smashed the back of his skull with a cast iron frying pan. David immediately lost consciousness and only survived by later crawling out to the neighbor's home, who immediately called for an ambulance. At the hospital, David woke up confused and with a fractured skull, brain swelling, as well as extensive brain damage and an obviously terrible concussion. Catherine was holding his hand and tearfully apologized for nearly killing him. The story she told David and the one the couple stuck to when reporting it to the police was that David had come home later than expected and scared pregnant Catherine believed him to be a burglar. Okay. Yep. Thus, she struck out in what she believed was self-defense. I mean, he was struck in the back of the head, meaning he had to get through the door and walk by her before she hit him in the back of the head. So this excuse is ludicrous yep i mean obviously david must have known that this wasn't the real story after being burned and all of the abuse she had piled onto him but it stands to reason that he had fear of Catherine's retaliation obviously but there was also the macho culture of 1970s rural australia 
that might have prevented him from feeling like he could truly come forward and discuss the abuse and go to the police, you know? Of course. Of course. Well, this would be a terrible mistake. Only one month later, his wound not yet even totally healed. Catherine tried the old frying pan to the back of the head trick again when he returned home late from a darts tournament. Thankfully, this time David expected it and managed to duck and disarm Catherine before she could do any further brain damage to him. He escaped to one of his drinking buddies' houses where he spent the night. The situation was now obviously completely out of control. David realized he needed to get out with his life and soon. Shockingly, Catherine had been correct about one thing. David was cheating on her. Okay, I literally, halfway through you telling this story, I was like, just, I was going to say, just to be clear, he's not cheating on her, but... (laughs) What a dumbass. Why would you do this when you have the craziest wife on the planet? This could have been marked up to a self-fulfilling prophecy on Catherine's part because his affair started long after she had repeatedly accused him of it. So it was kind of one of those situations where he was like, if you're going to keep punishing me for cheating on you when I'm not, I might as well be, you know? Of of course. Yeah. I mean, this is like all textbook, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. but it's just like, if you're already, exactly. If you're already getting the shit beaten out of you and like accused of stuff, it's like, there's so many times I think in modern day to without abuse where that happens, where like the woman yeah. just like thinks it and then projects it. And then yeah, and either partner, either sex or, you know, type of partner yeah. where somebody's like constantly making you feel bad for something you're not doing. You're like, oh, I might as well fucking do it. You know? Yeah. It's like, okay. <laughs> yeah. I think also after the extensive abuse, David was probably looking for comfort and yeah. for somebody like, that he could run to and escapism, you know? Yep. Um, so he had reconnected with a young woman he had known in his hometown of Queensland. Do you know where that is? Actually North. It's where, oh, it's um, okay. yeah, it's where the Great Barrier Reef is, I believe. Oh, oh nice. And where Brisbane is and the Gold Coast and and everything. Yeah, Can- Cairns, C-A-I-R-N-S, which they say Cairns, is up there. Um, okay. So it's like on the way to, it's like the tip of it almost touches Papua New Guinea. Oh, okay. Okay, cool. Yeah. Now, David was in double trouble as mm-hmm. Catherine's due date approached and he discovered that his new girlfriend was also pregnant. Oh my God. It's a disaster. <laughs> he told the girlfriend he would leave Catherine and he began to plot his furtive escape. Still absolutely terrified of Catherine and her vengeance, he decided to leave at the one time she could not possibly follow and kill him. Can you guess when that would be? No. When she's in labor with their first child. Stop. I don't know whether this is genius or cowardly. Uh Uh-huh. Could it be both? I think it's both. Normally, I'd castigate a guy for leaving his wife for his mistress while his wife is giving birth to their child. But he was the victim (laughs) of horrifying domestic abuse. So I'm kind of like on his side here. Oh, my God. Yikes. In any case, when Catherine went into labor, she called her parents to take her to the hospital and instructed David to pack the hospital bag and meet them as soon as possible. David did pack a bag, his, 
and he got the fuck out of there. He grabbed as much of his clothes as possible and immediately left for Queensland, a 20-hour drive away. That's so crazy. I mean, you have to remember too, and this is like a good thing to remember for um, audience too, is that Australia is like geographically the same size as the US. So it's big. Yeah. So that's like driving from Sydney to like 20 hours to Queensland is like driving from San Diego to the top of the US. Yeah. Yeah, like it was it was a big drive and he was getting out while the getting was good. He didn't <laughs> tell anyone. The only thing he did was he stopped by the slaughterhouse and he gave them his resignation. And the people who worked at the slaughterhouse knew about all of like, you know, the burns and the bruises yeah. and the crap he had gone through. So they're like, good for you, dude, run, you know? Yeah, yep, yep. Catherine spent every minute of her long and arduous labor asking for her husband, who was, of course, nowhere to be found. At first, the family believed he must have gotten into an accident somewhere. His car and the hospital bag were missing, so it seemed a logical conclusion. But, like, he hadn't taken that much stuff. He had just taken as much as he possibly could. So when Joy, her twin sister, like, went to their apartment to be like, where is he? It didn't look like he left. So they had like all their friends like looking all around Aberdeen to be like, did he stop somewhere and get into an accident? Did he like go to the bar? Where is he? (laughs) But by the time baby girl Melissa Ann Kellett had come into the world, Catherine was beginning to realize that the new daddy had done a runner. Wow. Can you imagine this when you also, she had postpartum. So she, and it's Catherine. So like, she's already, you know, untethered. I know. I feel bad for the child already. I feel real bad for the kids in this story. That's like the one kind of, I obviously, David had been suffering like severe abuse and everything, but like, you're just going to leave your kid. Yeah, and this gives, like, there's a couple moments in the story, too, that you have a little sympathy for Catherine because she's a victim of abuse as well, and she doesn't know, you know, she obviously didn't get any mental health treatment, and now in her most vulnerable time, her worst nightmare has come true. Yep. She's by herself giving labor and then, like, about to, like, have to take care of this kid by herself. And she's, she's like, like, at this point, she's, like, 19 years old. Yeah, and, like, her favorite pastime is, like, skinning pigs alive. And she can't even do it because she's out on maternity. She doesn't even have the joy of skinning pigs alive. You know, the joy. That's been, that. that's been ripped from her as well. <laughs> it's her only pleasure in life. Oh, my God. Catherine at first raged, imagining all of the gruesome and bloody ways she would enact her revenge, but quickly fell into a deep depression. Her circumstances certainly not helping what appeared to be a terrible case of PPD that might have occurred even without David's abandonment. Oh, of course. With Mm -hmm. how? Yeah. So yeah, psychotic and stripped of her husband and the job she loved, Catherine only grew more aggressive while walking three-week-old Melissa in her pram. We're back with the prams here. Or baby carriage. She would scream at passersby and fling the baby carriage wildly from side to side. Mm. Oftentimes, the neighbors heard Catherine yelling violently at the infant while she cried. Eventually, enough well-meaning strangers reported her behavior to the police who performed a wellness check. 
well, Catherine was decidedly not well and was taken to St. Elmo's for her first hospitalization and treatment for PPD. Little Melissa was sent to Catherine's parents. At that first hospitalization, Catherine was diagnosed with, of course, postpartum depression and also borderline personality disorder. Okay. Which That's good that they actually start acknowledging some sort of issue. Exactly. And I don't yeah. even know if she really discussed a lot of what had happened in her home to her because I think that Catherine was so strong. She didn't want to portray herself as a victim, but just through her general way of being and how she treated other people, it was very easy to see that she had a personality disorder. Uh, It's almost like better that she didn't because they could just diagnose her based off of her actions. Exactly. Which explains the high highs and the low lows of her interpersonal relationships. BPD is often characterized by extremely intense but unstable relationships as the sufferer gives everything they can to the relationship in their attempts to ensure that their partner never leaves, but they instead end up burning themselves out and blaming that same partner for the emotional toll that it takes on them, which was like her trying to be the perfect wife, the perfect girlfriend, cooking, cleaning, having everything perfect for him. But then, you know, as he's out all night at the pub, she's going nuts internally and thinking about all she worked so hard at to keep him and it it makes her respond violently you know obviously all people who have borderline personality disorder aren't violent you know no 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 no, no, um this just was particularly Catherine's situation and all people who have bpd it's not a result of any sort of sexual abuse no exactly yeah it's it's just a something that happens yeah um another subject we've covered with bpd was celeste beard remember her Mm-hmm. And she had the same types of passionate, but in her case, not violent, but emotionally abusive relationships, you know? Yeah. yeah, that was episode sweet 16. That was a while ago. How the fuck do you remember that? Did you write that down? <laughs> no, I didn't. I knew that, that one. Crazy. I think I remember like all of them until 20 and then it probably gets a little... Uh, fuzzy after 20. But you can just blame that on the third try. I'm going to blame that on the pregnancy here. Yeah. I'm going to blame a lot of stuff on this. Well, I can. <laughs> One of the doctors disagreed, however, and preferred to label Catherine as suffering from psychopathy compounded with narcissism. But the 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 overwhelming diagnosis was borderline personality disorder. However, all agreed that postpartum depression seemed to be triggering this recent attack, and they discharged her after a week and a promise to take her new meds. Catherine collected Melissa and headed home as her parents wished for the best. Sadly, the hospital seemed to have released Catherine much, much too soon. And shortly thereafter, a homeless man in Aberdeen saved baby Melissa from the train tracks while a train was coming. Excuse me? Yes. So this guy um, had been like, like kind of like being like like a hobo situation like he was like living around the train yards and he heard a baby crying and he rounded a corner and as the train tracks are rattling because a train is coming he sees an infant on the tracks so he like ran and scooped her up and apparently the train passed by like a minute later that makes me ill. Doesn't that make you sick to your stomach? Yeah. A little innocent baby. Thank God that guy was there, you know? Yeah. Oh. So apparently, first Catherine had abandoned Melissa on the train tracks 
which people think she knew the train schedule. So she knew that she was condemning her daughter to death. And then she had gone into town and gone to a local hardware store. She had stolen an axe and had begun swinging at pedestrians outside of the store in a rage. uh, How is she not going to jail for that? Yeah, this is crazy. Um, By the time Melissa was rescued, the police were closing in on Catherine in a desperate attempt to disarm her. So, of course, the police didn't dare come close to her. She was taller than any one of the officers sent out to fetch her. And with the axe in hand, she had enough of a reach to take a lump out of any one of them if they tried to come at her with their billy clubs. Oh, my God. Because we're in Australia. No guns. No guns. So these guys are like, what the sweet hell am I supposed to do against this six foot Viking woman wielding an axe? God. They trailed along just out of reach. Like basically at this point, they could just keep everyone else away from her. They were just like, while she's like walking down the street, swinging at people, they're just trying to move other people out of the way. As she stalked back and forth, swinging the axe around and around, growling and spitting and snarling. So, not very COVID friendly. Not very, not very COVID friendly. Not very anything friendly. Just not very friendly. Not very friendly. Not very friendly at all. And so it seemed like she was like just about to start like, attacking the cops themselves when the homeless guy came over the hill like into the town because he was going to the police station with the baby he found oh my god and the baby was crying of course so when she heard her baby crying she dropped the axe so of course immediately the police all tackle her at this point And they hauled her back to St. Elmo's and once again placed Melissa in her grandparents' care. But do you want to hear the most insane thing? I don't, I I mean, you're going to tell me anyway. I am. She was allowed to sign herself out after one night. One, one night. And she was out of St. Elmo's. How? I feel like this was a lack of communication between the police and the psychiatric hospital. Because later on, I'll talk about how the police didn't even know she was out. Wow. And they, I feel like they would, obviously, because they need to be on alert. They do need to be on alert. So for some, I don't know if it was a mistake in the administration at the hospital, she somehow got out the next morning. So she goes over to her parents and her parents are like, yeah, no, you put our grandchild on the train tracks. You don't just get her back at this point. Absolutely not. Which, can we recall the fact, like, 10 minutes ago, I was telling you how her dad repeatedly raped her mother in front of her? And these people are now the voice of reason in this story. This is so bonkers. So, oh my God. She just went back to her house and now she has absolutely nothing. She has no job to go to. She is full of crazy hormones. She has no husband. She has no daughter. She has nothing. So for like three days, she just works herself into a tizzy. And on the third day, she goes to her neighbor's home who are the Macbeths. And they were the same people that David had like dragged his body to, to get them to save him when she assaulted him with a frying pan. So the family was already kind of like on high alert about her. 
but the parents weren't home. So Catherine told the 16-year-old daughter, Margaret, that her baby was sick and she needed a ride to go be with her. And Margaret or Maggie, as she was also called, was like, oh, okay, that's terrible because like Catherine was like, please, please help me. She was like practically crying. She's like, I don't know if Catherine like couldn't drive or she didn't have a car, but she was um, not able to get herself there. So she's like, okay, but I have to bring my younger brother because I'm babysitting him. And Catherine's like, sure, whatever, like, let's just go. So as soon as the three people got in the car, Margaret realized she had made a really, really grave mistake. The 16-year-old assumed she'd be taking Catherine to her parents to see baby Melissa. Instead, Catherine demanded that Maggie drive her to Queensland, which was over a thousand miles away. And she wanted to do this, she told Maggie, so she could attack David and his, quote, whore. When Margaret gently protested that she was unable to drive Catherine so far away because of school in the morning, Catherine took out a previously concealed knife and cut the young girl's cheek. You are lying. No, Maggie is screaming. Of course, she's been assaulted at this point. And Catherine was like, you better fucking drive or I'll open you up. So the teen has no idea what to do. She starts crying and driving. And she finally convinces Catherine that they're never going to make it to Queensland on an empty (sighs) tank. So she needs to fill up. And Catherine begrudgingly agrees. So Catherine warns her when she gets out to pump the gas that if there was any funny business, she'd kill her little brother who was in the back seat. The excruciating scene was detailed in Maneater as follows. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Doesn't it just make you sick? Oh. With the tank filled to the brim and as much of a delay as Maggie could muster to think, she headed inside to pay. The moment she was out of Catherine's sight, she ran for the till. Please, please, you've got to help me, me and my brother. We've been kidnapped. It's Catherine Knight. She's got a knife. She wants me to drive her to Queensland. She did this to my face. Please, please call the police. The police hadn't exactly been waiting for this call. They didn't even know that Catherine had been released from the hospital or that it was possible for her to just sign herself out after she was supposed to be incarcerated. (laughs) You must have been like, what the, what the what she's what she's where she cut your face they must have been freaking out like like three days after she was trying to kill her baby on the train tracks and just swinging a battle axe down the road oh my god oh my god so two officers rushed oh out god. to the gas station where things had already begun to deteriorate Maggie hadn't gone back to the car, the poor thing. She couldn't bring herself to get back in, even if it meant her little brother was in danger. Her cheek was throbbing in pain. She was covered in blood from the cut, and her hands wouldn't stop shaking. I mean, this is kind of like we talked about in the last episode. I mean, she's having a fight-or-flight response right now, and she's not wanting to get back in the car with a woman who's going to murder her, you know? No. Yeah. Catherine's patience ran dry only a moment after Maggie went into the gas station, but with no clear course of action to follow, she sat there growling and ranting to herself until the girl came back into sight. So it doesn't say this in the book, but this is what leads me to believe that she could not drive because otherwise it seems like she'd just take the car and go. Yeah. You know, unless Maggie had the keys, but they didn't say. So I don't know. Either she can't drive or 
Maggie has the keys. Either way, Catherine is stuck now at the gas station. The girl yeah, and the like, woman- Wouldn't you just like teach yourself how to drive then if you're like- Yeah, so I mean, it must be that Maggie has the keys, right? But why wouldn't she just steal the car keys from Maggie at the beginning rather than take her along? She's not the brightest. Yeah, she's not really all with it. So yeah. I don't know why I'm asking these questions as if there was like rational thought involved in this <laughs> at all. No. Oh my God. The girl and the woman stared at each other for a long time, neither one of them willing to make the first move, but neither one of them willing to meet in the middle. This was when the boy in the back seat decided to take his chance. He unstrapped his belt and was halfway out the door before Catherine caught him by the back of the collar. When straining with all his strength proved insufficient to free him from her grasp, he wriggled out of his shirt and dropped to the tarmac with a yelp. Catherine was out the door and on him before he could move more than a few feet toward his sister. The huge woman rode the boy down to the ground before placing the blade of the knife against his throat and dragging him to the feet by his hair. She nicked him once or twice in the scramble to their feet and little trails of red ran down his bare, dusty chest. Maggie covered her mouth to hold back a scream. Get over here and drive this car. Maggie shook her head. She didn't trust her own voice to work. You get over here or I'm going to gut him like a hog. You want to wear his guts? You want to see him dead? You're the one killing him, not me. Get over here, you little slut. So, so rough. This time, Maggie managed a little wail from behind her fingers. You get in that car right this effing minute or he's going to be squealing like a stuck pig, you hear me? I ain't going to kill him quick. It's going to hurt. You want to watch that? You want to hear that? She let out a little whimper. No. Maggie took a step forward, but the gruff old man from behind the counter had caught her arm. Don't do it. I've got to, she whimpered. You don't understand. He's my brother. I'm, I'm supposed to be taking care of him. He croaked back. If you give her what she wants, she doesn't need him anymore. She'll kill him. You stay away or she'll kill him and kill you. The police car finally tore up the dirt road, throwing up a cloud of dust that blocked out the stars. Catherine spun on the spot, her sunken eyes tracking any movement, every bit the primeval predator that her doctors accused her of being. Her grip on the boy's hair never loosened, but the blade didn't bite in any deeper either. She was keeping her options open. When the police came out of their car, it was with their hands held up. Both of them had been present for her arrest earlier in the week. They knew oh how God. dangerous this woman was. Yeah, they had been there for the, the Ren Fair uh, display. And they didn't want to risk another innocent life being flung onto the train tracks of her impending insanity. Let's just put that knife down, eh? We're all friends here, aren't we, Kath? Kath. That's Kath. a Aussie. Kath. Yeah. Catherine negotiated with the police, but realized she could not fight them or stab them while holding the boy. So she let him drop and kicked him towards the cops. Oh, thank God. As the police advanced on her, she swung wildly with her knife, daring them to come closer. She managed to cut one man's hands and land a brutal punch to another's face. One police officer narrowly avoided her sharp knife to his ribs before the gas station attendant threw a pair of brooms at the police. And working together, they closed in on Catherine and managed to bat the knife out of her hands with the brooms. Is, can you even ima like imagine that scene? Like these guys it's like, like four on one. Yeah, and they're like brute brushing her. <laughs> they're taking the broom and like like trying to hit the knife out of her hands. <laughs> Like, I, I'm not, like, super pro-gun, obviously, but, like, 
this would have been a good situation. It might have been nice to have somebody have at least a taser, you know? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he's the craziest bitch we've ever covered for sure. Whoa. Whoa. Even with her disarmed, it took two officers to battle her to the ground where she clawed, kicked, and screamed until they could get the handcuffs on her. This time, the police bypassed St. Elmo's and took Catherine directly to a high-security psychiatric hospital called Morissette. At Morissette, she told the doctors what her plan had been. She was going to drive to Queensland and torture David's mother until she gave Catherine his new address. (sighs) Then she was going to kill the old woman and hunt him down. She planned to kill him and the new girlfriend that she was certain he was with, along with any witnesses or bystanders who got in her way. Then she was going to come back to Aberdeen and kill anyone who might have helped him in his escape, starting with a local mechanic who had recently fixed his car, allowing him to get away in the first place. That's quite the plan. Quite the bloody plan there, Catherine. She spent a much longer time in Morissette, at least a few weeks, as her parents had no interest in springing her from the psych ward. She could have been committed indefinitely if it hadn't been for one man. Who? Police notified David of his wife's mental condition, hospitalizations, and the fact that she had homicidal ideations about him, his mother, and their child. And instead of immediately filing for a restraining order and a divorce, David felt guilty. He blamed himself entirely for the events that followed after he abandoned Catherine. And in an effort to right his wrongs, he now abandoned a second baby mama, the girlfriend who was at the very end of her third trimester and about to have a baby, and moved himself and his mother back to Aberdeen to care for Catherine. Jesse. Andrea. <laughs> Can you believe this shit? Can you? How could you possibly think that that would be a good idea? And what is mom thinking? What is David Kellett's mama Kellett over here is like, I heard she wants to kill me, but torture, hey, torture and kill. kill. Torture and kill. But you know what? I think this sounds like a great move. This sounds like what I want your life to be like, David. Oh, my God. Uh Uh-huh. I think David needs to do some self-work here. David. David. (laughs) David. 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 There you go. There we go. That's it. Wow. So he reapplied and he got his job back at the slaughterhouse and then he petitioned. Thank God. That was such an important detail. He then petitioned the courts for Catherine's release, naming himself and his mother as his care as her caretakers. So basically, obvious like that scene was so yeah. bad that they they she was going to be in there forever. It would take an outside person coming in, petitioning the courts, you know, going through the proper channels, naming themselves as caretakers. And her parents said no. Her parents were like, fuck that. She's She needs exactly where she needs to be. She needs to be in there and work on herself. 
Yeah. And David and his mom came and took her out of the psychiatric hospital. Yikes a dykes. Um so she was released on August 9th, 1976, on the condition she stay on the staggering combination of antipsychotics and sedatives that they prescribed. The reunited couple immediately went to go pick up baby Melissa at Catherine's parents. So when Barbara saw David coming up the path, she like went apeshit on him because, you know, in her opinion, that was why her daughter had gone crazy. You know, so she started like losing her shit on David and Catherine was actually going to stay in the car and she saw her mother like starting to hit David and she got out of the car and punched. She cold cocked her mother. (laughs) She's like been out of the psychiatric hospital for like 20 minutes and she's already cold cocked the woman who brought her into the world. Wow. And Barbara goes down. She steps over Barbara and goes in the house and grabs baby Melissa. So Catherine found life back in Aberdeen completely unbearable as, of course, all the townspeople were like gawking and gossiping and terrified of her. So she and David eventually moved to Woodridge, which is a quiet suburb of Brisbane. Is that how you say it? Brisbane? Brisbane, yeah. And what year did you say this was? This is 1976. Wow. So that's where they are attempting a fresh start. Catherine scored a job on the line at the Dinmore Meatworks. She took her meds and she enjoyed the home life that she had been robbed of by David's disappearance. David and Catherine's (laughs) second daughter, Natasha Marie Kellett, was born on March 6th, 1980. And this time, David was at Catherine's side throughout the entire labor and delivery. I guess he just abandoned the other one. (laughs) So fucked. That girlfriend must be like, what the hell did I do wrong that he goes back to the woman who's tried to kill him multiple times and steals axes and swings them at innocent people? Oh, God. Oh, my God. I would be like you know what? It's not me. It's definitely him. (laughs) It's definitely him. That is a level of crazy. I cannot aspire to not to, not to keep a man and not for anything. Woof. For once in Catherine's chaotic life, things were stable, routine, healthy, and boring. By (laughs) Natasha's fourth birthday, Catherine could no longer endure the monotony of family life or playing David's wife. And David had been completely faithful and like the perfect husband throughout this time. So was she I don't, okay? I, I mean, I think there's no um, police reports of her attacking him. So I guess she's been okay. I guess the meds are working. Okay. And and I don't really know if this is like a facet of her personality disorder or she's just, you know, some people love the drama, you know? Yeah. And there had been no drama now for, you know, like – Gosh, I guess like six years or something at this point. Time to, time to pick up an axe. Time to pick a, pick up an axe. Get back into it. You're losing yourself. You're not doing the things you love anymore. You're losing your stride. Yes. So she took her daughters and went back to Aberdeen and she began to work at the old abattoir once more. David did not contest the divorce and Catherine was once again footloose and fancy free. Unfortunately, two years after returning to Aberdeen, Catherine suffered a devastating back injury while hoisting a particularly heavy hog carcass. 
and was put on permanent disability. I guess the the hogs got their revenge in the end. <laughs> this is for my fallen brethren. Oh my god. Oh my god. Yep, a hog got her in the end. Uh, she absolutely loved her job, so she was deeply depressed at the thought of never returning to work in a slaughterhouse. In 1986, she was only 31 years old and was looking to renew her lease on life. She's like 31. She is single. She's on disability permanently. She's like, I got to get something good in my life. I feel like this bitch has been alive forever. I know she's. It's like, how is she 31? That feels like the beginning of my life was 31. Like, oh my God. When I got to that part, I was like, how is she not fucking 56? This is like insane. Um, so Melissa was old enough at this point to kind of look over her little sister, Natasha, and Catherine hit the bars to find her next victim or boyfriend. She quickly met 38-year-old David Saunders. I guess she likes uh, the men named David. So the other David gets out. David, David didn't contest the divorce. He's like, I'm going to let this go. This seems like a good move in my life. I'm going to let her go. So David Kellett's fine. He survives. By the skin of his teeth. I wonder if he goes back to girlfriend. Maybe he does. I don't know. He should start all over. He should actually be single for a while. I think he's got some work to do on himself. Um, <laughs> Touche. Yeah. So she meets David number two, who is a minor from nearby Scone. The two hit it off and he moves in with Catherine almost instantly, though he ends up keeping his small apartment in Scone where he occasionally retreats to after their fights. For the most part, the couple seemed happy. David had even brought home a little dingo puppy that he and the girls adored and appeared very happy being a stepfather figure to Melissa and Natasha. On their first anniversary, David brought home a beautiful bouquet to celebrate and he found Catherine in a dark mood. David attempted to tease out of Catherine <laughs> what the matter was. Now, dark mood, like in a bad mood or dark mood playing with knives or dark mood swinging around axe you know there's different (laughs) the perfect storm this was a really this was a key catherine mood because as he's trying to figure out why she's so upset with him she scoops the puppy up by the scruff and with one clean motion slits the baby puppy's throat so deeply that david could see its spine And then she declares, if I ever catch you running around on me, this is what I'll do to you. Where are the children? I have no idea. It could have been in front of the children. Holy shit. That is extra evil. A puppy. Holy shit. Also terrifying. David was... Of course, horrified. And he tried to leave the room when Catherine- This is on their anniversary? On their one-year anniversary. He's coming in with a bouquet and she slits a puppy's throat. Yeah, happy anniversary, babe. Nathaniel, when I told him this, he was like, I would be gone. I would leave you in a second. He was like, I was like, we've been married for like seven years. You wouldn't like, you know, take me to a hospital and try to figure out what what made me kill a puppy. He's like, no, you killed a puppy. I would leave you on the spot. And I would never speak to you again. <laughs> I was like, fair play. Fair, play. fair, play. fair enough. 
<laughs> I was oh, like, you want to even try to work through it? He's like, no. <laughs> He's like, there's, there's no working through killing a puppy. <laughs> you psycho. <laughs> Like, good to know. Cross puppy killing. That's the line. That's the line. I would do anything for love, but I wouldn't watch you kill a puppy. That's it. That's it. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah, well, it gets worse. While he's he's trying to escape, (laughs) she gets her old friend, the frying pan, out, and she starts beating him. Until he falls to the ground in the fetal position. And then she keeps beating him over the head and the body until he loses consciousness. <laughs> I guess she really didn't like the flowers. Like, you give me fucking carnations, you fucking cheap fuck. <laughs> oh, my God. baby's breath cheap ass filler (laughs) oh my god oh my god oh oh my god all right we gotta get it together here andy after regaining consciousness david retreated to his apartment in scone also good move keeping your apartment dude God. So he lived there for a week while Catherine begged his forgiveness. And eventually, David number two relented and moved back in. Oh my God. No pussy is that good. No (laughs) pussy is worth a puppy killer. Oh. No way. Oh my God. I mean, yeah, she must have been an extraordinary leg because this is bananas behavior to excuse holy crapola oh god so a few months later the troubled couple discovered that yay they were expecting a baby my god in preparation david gave up his lease in scone and the two purchased a tiny two-bedroom house on mcqueen street in aberdeen It was the first home that Catherine had ever known, and she loved it. She immediately set out to decorate it from her unique creative perspective. (laughs) Knives. Oh, yeah. You want to hear what it looks like in that house? It's, It's like your personal hell. You think that my house, like, at Christmas time that looks like home goods puked over everything is bad? This was animal pelts, taxidermy, skulls. Rusty animal traps, machetes, pitchforks, and her beloved knives covered every inch of the house. With a baby on the way. With a baby on the way. And with kids in the house. She had two girls. Yeah. I mean, you could get like tetanus from just like brushing up against a wall in this place. (laughs) (laughs) Better get your tea dap. If you want to fuck with Catherine. Oh, my God. 
Oh, I get a little shrimp on the barbie. <laughs> yeah, you don't expect Along with some tetanus. The tetanus on the side. Well, David <laughs> didn't seem to mind, and the couple welcomed baby Sarah in June of 1988. Almost oh. immediately, Catherine once again was plunged into postpartum depression. She began to resent David and his ties to her, her child, and what she thought was her house. In early 1989, her workers' comp payment from the back injury came through, and it was enough to pay off the house on McQueen and essentially buy it out from under David. The house had been the only thing that Catherine stood to lose by lashing out at him, and now she owned it. Shortly after that, David and Catherine got into a fight about dirty laundry. He was saying that she wasn't doing a very good job keeping on top of the laundry, which seems like a not wise thing to say to Catherine. And Catherine fetched a pair of scissors to begin methodically cutting up all of David's clothes into ribbons. As she started on his last pair of pants... He lunged at her to pull them away, and Catherine quickly stabbed him in the gut. Just a quick stab in the gut. Just a quick stab in the gut. As he looked down in horror, she twisted the scissors and yanked them out as he howled in pain and then reached for her trusty iron to finish the job. Now, when she reached for the iron, David didn't hesitate. He ran from the house and he drove himself to the hospital where his stomach wound was treated. Luckily, Catherine had missed all the vital organs and the wound was stitched up neatly. David immediately rented a room in Scone and took a leave of absence from the mine where he got his affairs in order. So just like David number one, when he left the slaughterhouse, David number two went to the mines and was like, I've got a stomach wound. I got to like figure my life out. I need to take a break. And they're like, oh, we know about Catherine, you crazy fuck. I can't believe you dated her. Take as long as you need. No way. Mm-hmm. Three months later, now settled in Scone, he attempted to return to Aberdeen to save his daughter, Sarah. And he even wanted to take Melissa and Natasha if they wanted to come with him because he was, you know, worried about all the kids in the household. But when he had barely crossed the town line, he was pulled over. Catherine had falsified a long history of domestic abuse on David's part to the police. And he currently had an outstanding apprehended violence order, which is similar to our restraining order against him. So the cops gave him two choices, either leave town for good or go straight to jail. David chose to hightail it back to Scone, leaving behind his daughter with Catherine. Ugh, that just makes me sick. I feel like he had limited resources to like, you know, get an attorney and try to figure out how to get his daughter back. He just kind of like gave up. That's really sad. It's tried. Yeah. At the end of that temptuous 1989, Catherine reunited with an old crush named John Chillingworth. He was the one from the beginning who didn't want to date a teenager very wisely. Um, So now they're both older. And like at the time, I think she had been like 16, 17, and he was like 10 years older. And now, you know, when you get older, a 10-year age difference is nothing. Yeah. So he figured, why not give it a shot? Bad move, dude. Bad move. John and Catherine's chemistry was electric, and he immediately moved into the house on McQueen. Unlike Catherine's previous love interest, John met her tantrums with stony silence and stare downs. 
and he met her fists with his own. The first time she slapped him across the face, he slapped her right back. I do not condone violence or this behavior even a little bit, but this seemed the only effective way for dealing with Catherine. He was speaking the only language she understood, which was violence. Yep. You know, and this seemed like a a different relationship insofar as his being willing to go there with her kept her a little bit more in line, you know? Okay. Catherine became... Once again, pregnant and gave birth to her one and only son, Eric. You know, she's a fertile bee. At the end of 1990, though she didn't experience the same wave of hormonal depression she had with some of her previous births, she was still brought low when John admitted to her that once during her pregnancy while drunk, he had been unfaithful. That's so fucked. It's so fucked. I guess he felt guilty. He had a drinking problem, number one. And she was actually doing really well after the birth of Eric. I think she was really excited to have a boy. It was her first boy. And she really, really loved John. And they seemed like they were doing fine. And he was like, everything was going so well that like his guilt made him confess, which honestly, I feel like he should have just not. If he was never going to do it again and it was like I a know. one night stand. I kind of wish he had just hadn't because she seemed actually in a good place for once, you know? Yeah. So this is what Ryan Green had to say about her reaction. Catherine's rages had always been incandescent, but this one burned with a cold fire that should have served as a warning in itself. She walked calmly through to the bathroom and punched the glass containing John's false teeth into fragments, with the enamel teeth scattering all over the tile and in a clatter. Even then, John didn't grasp the depth of the trouble that he was in. Oh, look what you've done now. I've only got the one pair I'm wearing to last me till I get those fixed. Catherine eyed him up and then swung her fist again. Breaking the set of false teeth in the jar had been an inconvenience to him. Breaking the set that was still in his mouth was a lesson. He spat out the fragments along with a mouthful of blood. There was no fear on his face. If that's what she had been hoping for, she had grossly misjudged the man. Instead, there was the careful assessing expression. He was a survivor and he was calculating his odds. That night, he slept in his own apartment, but the next day, he came back to the house to collect his things. That was when he found her lying nearly dead from an overdose of sleeping pills on the bed. I mean, she could not get him to respond to her violence, so she's hurting herself now to get a reaction. Yep. Just like that, he was ensnared again. He panicked, snatched her up, and drove her to the hospital. Her stomach was pumped and she was saved, but she ended up back in a mental institution for observation for a week to ensure that the threat of suicide had passed. During that time, Chillingworth watched her children and drove out to see her through every visiting hour. He was horrified by what he had driven her to, and all of his safety concerns faded away in the face of the reality of losing her over his own foolish choices. When she was released, his apology was accepted and the couple returned to life as normal, as normal as it was with Catherine. John thought that they had weathered the worst of it and he recommitted himself to be the best partner and father possible. But Catherine knew that revenge was a dish best served cold. 
She memorized his schedule every single day. She knew exactly where he was going to be at any given time. And on those nights when he went out to the bar, which was most of them, she knew exactly when her old friend, the bartender, would gently nudge the man towards the door. When he came home from the bar after a long night at work and found her spread eagled on the bed with another man thrusting away between her legs, he knew that it was deliberate. She had chosen to make him see that, to see her affair right in front of his eyes, to know that it could have been going on for months or years without him ever knowing until this moment when she wanted him to know. So again, I think she could not get him to respond to her violence So she was trying to stick a knife in every way she could. And this was like his pride in manhood and the revenge for cheating. At least it was sticking a knife in metaphorically. (laughs) Yes, at least somebody was like thrusting her and she wasn't thrusting in anyone else in this case. Yeah. (laughs) So John was done. He left the house and he never came back. It took him less than a week to put his affairs in order, during which time he was lucky enough to avoid Catherine, who thought he was like sulking and that he was going to come back to her. After his brush with Catherine Knight, John Chillingworth got his life back in order. He moved to a big city. He joined a program. He quit drinking and eventually got a full-time job as a counselor, helping addicts who were trying to break free from the cycle of brutality and addiction. Out of all of the partners that Catherine Knight chose for herself, he was the only one to escape without permanent injury, and it seems that he wanted to pay that good karma forward to the other men in the world who might have been in similarly dire straits. Good for John. Unfortunately, there was nothing that he could do to help a man who was already in the clutches of a dangerous and self-destructive addiction, but completely unwilling to try to get out on his own. There was no saving a man like John Price. Oi, we've made it all the way back to poor Pricey. Did you like that? Oi. (laughs) Oi. This is how little I know about Australia. Sorry, Australian (laughs) listeners. Uh, Their affair had been going on for nearly a year before Catherine intentionally got caught. John was an amiable and well-respected first responder in the mines of Aberdeen. He was divorced, and two of his older children resided with him, daughter Becky and son Little John. The families melded well together, and John, for the most part, shook off Catherine's paranoias and outbursts regarding infidelity in good spirits. After a loveless marriage, her passions were almost welcome. In a twisted way, Pricey thought it showed how much she cared for him that she was so jealous. Hmm. No, that is, we've had to say this a million times. Jealousy is not a positive emotion. It does not mean somebody loves you more. It means that they think that you're their possession. Oh God. Woof. Catherine desperately wanted to get married, but that was one place where Pricey put his foot down. Both of them had endured miserable first marriages. Why would they do that again and rock the boat? After a couple of years together, though, he conceded to finally blending the families and invited Catherine and her children to move into his house with him and his kids. He had moved into a management role at the mines, and he was making enough money to support the whole gang. This appeased Catherine for a little while, but soon she began badgering John about marriage again. It seems there was also a situation where she really liked his house. He had a much nicer house than her. and. Part of the reason she wanted to get married was so that she could inherit the house. 
But he was very, very stuck on the idea that his children would inherit this house because, you know, he didn't come from any money. He had worked really, really hard to get where he was. He was very proud of owning his own home, you know, and it was the legacy he wanted to leave for his children. Yeah. So there were fundamental differences in how they approached their partnership in retaliation for his refusal to marry her or will her the home. Catherine did a truly underhanded deed. In 1989, the mine had recently replaced all of their first aid kits, tossing the rest into a dumpster to be destroyed. But the thrifty John Price had lifted them out of the trash and brought them home. Their contents may have been past their best by date, but the majority of them were still perfectly functional and he wasn't in the habit of getting rid of something that could still save a life. I mean, it's like gauze and stuff. How bad could it be? Yeah, come on. One day... While he was at work, Catherine took the video camera that he'd bought her for Christmas and filmed all of the kits, providing a running commentary about all of the things that John stole from his workplace. With the same deranged grin on her red face that she had always displayed during her most self-destructive acts of cruelty, she mailed the tape to his bosses at the mine. Come on, girl. Come on. You're shooting yourself in the foot, too. I mean, he's... This is her partner. This is the person whose house she's living in. It's you know, so dumb. It's ridiculous. By the end of the week, John's entire life had fallen apart. The job he had spent his whole adult life working had fired him for stealing company property. Even after the situation was fully explained, they didn't care. It seemed to be a punishment for associating with characters like Catherine Knight as much as it was retribution for any theft. Yeah. He drove home from the mine, gathered up all of Catherine's things, and threw them out in the street. When she arrived home, she found that the locks were changed. They stood on the doorstep and had a screaming argument for upwards of two hours before, finally, on threat of police involvement, she snatched up her belongings and stormed back to her little house on McQueen Street. John eventually landed a much less well-paying gig at the slaughterhouse, and he vowed to cut Catherine out entirely. But after a few weeks of no female attention or affection and Catherine hanging around her old abattoir haunts, where he also now hung out because that was his new <laughs> job. You weren't, you weren't fucking around when you said they all either work at the mine or the <laughs> I slaughterhouse. This is literally every guy in town who works at the, the slaughterhouse or the mine. Um. So after a few weeks, he was like, you know, he's drinking. She's at the bar. She's looking good. The beer goggles set in and he takes her back. Jesus. Bad move. Pricey. This time, however, though, he was trying to put his foot down and he refused to let her move back in. And he insisted on slowly rebuilding their relationship and trust, which is very wise. I mean, yeah, it would have been the most wise to not take her back at all. But if you're going to do it, do it slowly, you know? Yeah. John's friends and loved ones were disgusted at the couple's reunion. They even set up an intervention for Pricey, bringing in David Kellett, Catherine's first husband, to showcase his scars and warn John off the violent woman. Stop. They were like, we're going to bring in the big dogs here. This is what she did to her first husband. Do you want this to happen to you? Oh, my God. So David spoke very seriously to John. He said, if you cross her, she'll kill you. Do you understand me? 
This isn't a joke. She will kill you. But John Price couldn't break his addiction to the fiery redhead, and he stuck by her despite losing a majority of friends who weren't willing to sit idly by while Pricey ruined his life, or worse, lost it. Yeah, it's hard because you don't want to see your friend, like, go through that, you know? It's like at some point you've done everything you can though and and I understand yeah. why they would be like finally like I can't – I've, I've tro- told you. I've set up interventions. I've yeah. been there before you and I can't do it anymore, you know? Yeah. No. It didn't take long before Catherine was fighting with John daily about why she should be allowed to move back into the house. By the year 2000, every day had become a battlefield. One night, the fight escalated until Catherine stabbed John in the chest, far enough to brush against a rib bone, but not enough to kill him. Jesus. However, had it been a half inch down, it would have sunk into his heart. In fact, his heart was broken, metaphorically, that is. After the assault, John kicked Catherine out for good and the next day filed a restraining order against her. After the police station, he went to work as always, where his coworkers were extremely concerned about the bloody wound oozing through his shirt. Yeah. Yeah. (sighs) He told several of them that if he didn't turn up for work the next day, it would be because she had killed him. However, he turned down several offers for him to crash at other people's houses because he was concerned about his children, rightfully so. Of course, yeah. John was worried if Catherine couldn't find him, she would injure or murder his children. When he returned to his house after work, he was relieved to discover that the kids had gone to sleep over at friends' houses. Slightly concerning was the fact that Catherine had left a note telling him so, But a couple of quick phone calls confirmed that both kids were totally fine and where they were supposed to be. That night, John drank with some neighbors until he stumbled home around 11 p.m. to sleep it off. Catherine would soon just be a bad memory. While John was preparing for life without Catherine, Catherine was having a very different day. It seems like she knew she was going to be doing something that night. Uh, because she brought her video camera over to John's house and she filmed her children and John's children narrating it as though it was a video will, like saying, I want you to have this. I want you to have this, like saying that mama was saying goodbye and stuff. It was very bizarre. After that, she dropped off all the kids for their respective sleepovers and went into town and bought herself some expensive black lingerie at a local department store. Just after 11 p.m., she drove to John's house where she still had a key. Yikes, dude. Change the locks. Change the locks. After waiting to make sure he was truly passed out, she entered the home they had once shared and watched TV for a while. She enjoyed the solitude and normalcy for one last time. Oh, God. This is, this is the beginning of when it gets gnarly. Oh, it's At, the beginning? It's the beginning of the gnarliness. It's the beginning of the gnarly, gnarliness. <laughs> okay, this specific gnarliness. It's been gnarly this whole time. This has been a slaughterhouse roller coaster ride. Oh, Afterwards, she took a shower and dressed in the new lingerie. 
John was in a dead sleep when she crept into bed beside him, slowly stripping his clothes off his body and working to excite him with her hand while John still slept. No doubt thinking he was just having a fantastic dream, but he awoke to a nightmare. Catherine had succeeded in making him hard and was now on top of him, raping him. Before he could really understand what was going on, John's body betrayed him and he finished. In confusion and disgust, he threw Catherine off of him. This rejection was the last straw for Catherine. She had done everything, everything to please him, been exactly the fun, sexy wife every man claimed to want, and still he pushed her aside, taking her knife out of its hiding place. She stabbed Pricey in the guts and again and again, one move slicing into his liver. He struggled to get up from the bed as he raced for the door, desperate for survival. Catherine leapt up in hot pursuit, getting several stabs in across his broad back. As he futilely attempted to go through the door, blood sprayed everywhere, making it difficult to escape as they slipped and struggled in the wet liquid. Catherine managed to tackle John in the hallway by the front door, stabbing him maniacally. In his last reserve of strength, John managed to throw Catherine off of him and reach to open the front door. With Catherine attacking him, he managed to crawl into the front yard and attempted to scream, but his lungs were punctured. Mm. Like a scene from a horror movie, Catherine pulled him by the feet and dragged him back in the house, locking the door behind her. Oh, he was so close. No neighbors at all? I think it was really, really late because by the time she went over there, it was already 11 p.m., then, you know, she sat and watched TV. Then she took a shower. Then she raped him. So it was probably think, late. Do you think she was intending to kill him? Or do you think that the rejection just know. pushed her over the edge? Because she- later she has all of her belongings or a lot of her belongings in her car. And she did the weird video. So that would make me believe that she was it's going to kill him. Yeah. It was premeditated. And she was planning on escaping after she killed him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but then I'm wondering if like maybe that was plan B and she thought like if I got the lingerie and if I'm like having sex with him and he responds well to it and he takes me back I don't have to kill him you know so maybe it was like either rest yeah I mean either way it's psychotic it's totally psychotic It was now all over for John Price he died somewhere between the 20th and 30th stab wound It's fair to say that clearly Catherine wasn't thinking rationally. The acts of the next few hours would swing wildly from attempting to avoid prosecution to the truly bizarre, sick, and deranged. She took a shower to wash John's blood off of her body and then went to an ATM to use John's debit card to steal his life savings. Oh my God. Yep. John barely, fi- barely financially recovered from when Catherine had last sabotaged him because he was out of work for so long. He had to like pay his bills out of his savings. He only had a thousand dollars to his name. So <laughs> the thought is that, like I said, maybe the plan was to attempt to escape because she had her belongings in her car, but going on the run with a mere thousand dollars obviously wasn't going to cover it, you know? Yeah. 
So she returned to John Price's home where her slaughterhouse instincts overcame her. Mm. She fetched her prize knives from their spot over the bed and began to slowly and methodically butcher her lover. First, she decapitated him and put his severed head on the stove in a pot with water (sighs) and vegetables and began to simmer the disgusting murderous stew. It was exactly the way her mother cooked pig's heads. Yeah, I don't think anyone's going to be buying the Knight Family cookbook anytime soon. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Andy's just looking at me in shock and covering her eyes right now. (laughs) As if that's going to help me not hear this. No, it gets worse. Next, she took a thin, sharp blade and skinned John in one graceful cut, carefully removing the delicate organ from the layer of fat underneath. She hung his skin on a hook over a door in the living room. See, this is worse than like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. How does, like, it's like, why do you have a hook over your door in your living room? I mean, like, I don't know, to hang plants or something? Maybe? <sighs> I don't know. She continued her devil's work. Next, she removed chunks of flesh from John's buttocks and put them in a roasting pan with various root vegetables and spices. <sighs> also, she had, like, all these vegetables and stuff lying around. And then <laughs> placed those inside the oven at the same temperature and time she'd cook any other rump roast. Mm-hmm. Catherine then laid out plates and set the table, scribbling names on pieces of paper towel as place settings under each plate. Oh, fully lost it. Fully lost it. Specifically, Beaky, John's daughter's nickname for Rebecca, and Jonathan for little John. She then set John Price's headless, skinless corpse into his usual seat at the head of the table, posing him with a crossed leg and a bottle of lemonade under his dead arm. I mean, these are the details we don't usually get in Love Murder because this is the work of a deranged serial killer, not like a lady in love where things went a little off. I mean, it's it's otherworldly. It's unimaginable. Insane. Mm-hmm. With her gruesome tableau set and John's body cooking in the oven, she attempted a bizarre move to discredit John and potentially give her brutal murder a sympathetic motive, I guess. I mean, I say that with huge amounts of skepticism. She wrote a note in atrocious grammar and spelling that read, essentially what she was trying to say was, time got you back, Jonathan, for raping my daughter. Only she spelled raping, rapping, and daughter, D-O-U-T-E-R, duder. I mean, like, lost it. Lost it. You to back for Ross for Little John. Now play with Little John's dick, John Price. So the police said, or maybe when she was interviewed, she implied this, but they essentially got that it seemed like Catherine wanted to convey that John was an incestuous child molester. Uh, There's no evidence that this was even a little bit true, obviously. 
Yeah, and like it doesn't matter what he did when you walk into that scene. No, you're not like you're not like, oh, this was a crime of passion. Like if somebody did all of this cooking and skinning and decapitating, that's not a crime of passion. No. When the John roast was finished, Catherine served it up. Roast. Oh my god. There's no other way to put it. It's not a normal roast. Catherine served it up on plates with baked potato, pumpkin, beetroot, zucchini, cabbage, and yellow squash, and covered the dish with gravy. That's a lot of vegetables. That's like, that's a lot. Like, I don't have that much in my house routinely. I was kind of impressed with her kitchen stock, to be honest. I got to get more. I gotta get more vegetables in my life. I don't, I don't want anything right now. <laughs> <laughs> I know I have to eat dinner after this. Oh. Um, she set the dishes in front of John's children's places. Oh my god. It is speculated that Catherine saved a third cut of the cannibalistic roast for herself and after trying a bite, threw it out into the yard. Because that's where it was found and there was a bite out of it. In the end, her brutal rage possibly replaced by exhaustion, Catherine took an overdose of sleeping pills, crawled into the bed that was absolutely still covered with John Price's blood, and fell into a deep sleep. When John didn't show up for work the next day, his coworker and neighbor went around to his house. When they saw the bloody smears at the front door where John had been dragged, They swiftly called the police. The police immediately discovered Catherine, comatose but alive. She was sent in an ambulance to the hospital while the cops attempted to break down what actually occurred that deadly night. Yeah, like how could you? I mean, you can't imagine this. I mean, they had – when they found the skin – they did not know. At first, one of the cops said that he thought it was like a curtain or something. They had no idea what it was. It took the first responders a solid five minutes to work out what the object hanging from the doorway was. It took the lead detective to point out the nose and pubic hair before they could grasp what they were looking at. I, I can't. <laughs> I think we should just quit the podcast after this episode. I don't think we're ever going to have anything more absurd or violent ever on this show. Oh my God. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Oh, I hope you God. like the flowers your lover gives you. <laughs> I'm actually getting ill now, so let's continue, please. Okay. <laughs> These were small town police, unaccustomed to violence of this sort, and it took a dreadful toll on every one of them just to observe it. I can imagine nobody, even if you're in law enforcement, you don't expect this level of gratuitous gore. Like I mentioned in the intro, the poor men at the scene experienced PTSD. Many quit their jobs. Most became vegetarians for at least a little while, and some even committed suicide. John's body was taken to the coroner's office where it was discovered that he had suffered 37. Well, it was still there. It was just decapitated and skinned. He had suffered 37 separate stab wounds. 
It was abundantly clear that whoever had killed him was an expert skinner because the incisions that had been made were so perfect that when the autopsy was over, the coroner was able to stitch John back into his skin, leaving him looking almost like he did when he was alive. Why would they ever do that, A? And B, there's no question about who did this, right? I'm going to go ahead and say that should have been a closed (laughs) casket. Like, closed casket, closed case. Like, yeah, <laughs> closed casket, closed case. Close everything. <laughs> oh, my God. It was two days later that Catherine woke up. The police were on hand to question her, but they quickly discovered that the hardened killer whom they thought was in their clutches had severe mental health problems, you think? From the very beginning of her questioning, she claimed to remember nothing about the events of the night, but she was careful to cast doubt on any claim that she was responsible for John's death, talking at great length about how much she loved him. Were there no other witnesses to the rest of Catherine's life, it is possible that she would have convinced the police of either her innocence or insanity to a degree that she would avoid conviction. That was not the case. No. When the police began canvassing the area for any witnesses, they were approached by a delegation of the townsfolk of Aberdeen who begged them to ensure that Catherine never got out. Every person in Aberdeen lived in fear of her, and they dreaded what new heights of horror she could achieve if she were ever set loose. Yeah, that's you, there's no coming back from that. You, you lock her away and throw away the key, man. Catherine's trial began shortly after her recovery as the courts were eager to get the matter settled before more of the gruesome details were revealed to the public. As it was, it proved nearly impossible to find unbiased jurors who were willing to listen to the horrific case. I mean... We could barely get through this podcast. Can you imagine getting all of the details in court? No. And looking at her and being around her while they were discussing this? No. After submitting a guilty plea, but on the lesser charge of manslaughter, which the judge summarily rejected, the judge is like, this was not manslaughter. This was murder. You're not getting off that easy. Catherine pled not guilty and behaved theatrically at the trial, begging to be excused as the details of her crimes were recounted, and then throwing such a hysterical fit that she had to be sedated. She was, of course, found guilty of premeditated murder and gross abuse of a corpse, and the judge sentenced her to life in prison with a special addendum that she was never to be released. That's a that's an L WAP down under. thank god life without the possibility of parole that's usually an american thing Catherine knight was the first ever woman in australia to be given this sentence which is the harshest punishment possible because they don't have the death penalty okay Catherine is still alive and thriving in the Silverwater Women's Correctional Center in New South Wales. She is considered a skilled employee with a good work ethic at her prison factory job, and the other inmates call her Nana. Catherine is widely considered to run the institution, often being called in to resolve disputes among fellow prisoners. Everyone is understandably terrified of her, and it seems she is loving finally getting the respect she feels like she deserves. Only her twin Joy ever comes to visit. The rest of her family and children have disowned her. Her attorneys attempted an appeal in 2006 to, so that she could be considered for parole, but the courts shut that down real fast. Justice McLennan made a statement that the appeal was denied, 
and, quote, an appalling crime almost beyond contemplation in civilized society. I concur. This is, this case is beyond. So that is the crazy cannibal killer, Catherine Knight. Wow. Wow. How do you feel, Andy? Do you feel like I gave you a Valentine's Day present? I feel sick. (laughs) My work here is done. Drop the mic. Drop the mic. We did it. I I really feel like I saved the best Ryan Green for last, to be honest. (sighs) Sure. Wow. So, everyone, that is Catherine Knight. If you liked this dip into horror that we had today, I know how you can show us. You can jump on Apple Podcasts and give us a good review. And if you didn't like it, just don't do a review. Yeah, if you didn't like it, just, you know, DM us and be like, don't do that anymore. And we won't. (laughs) We'll have learned our lesson. (laughs) Oh, man. All right. And so, you know what? Next week, we do have a turn of the century case that will be a good palate cleanser. Like a vintage wine. It's, It's a vintage murder. It's going to be... A classy affair, okay? In conclusion, if your lover does any of the following things, hits you with a frying pan, burns you with an iron, stabs you anywhere, or slaughters a puppy in front of you, maybe you shouldn't get back together. On top of that, if uh, your mother-in-law tells you that her daughter will kill you, I would probably take that seriously. Yeah, mama knows best. (laughs) Mama knows best. (laughs) And as always, if somebody kills a puppy in front of you, run, bitch, run. Do not get back together. I swear to God. I swear to God. (laughs) Jeez Louise. Thank you guys so much for getting through that gnarly episode with you. You're the best listeners in the world. On this Valentine's Day, we send you a virtual box of chocolates. Bye. Bye. And better flowers. Bye. Bye.